Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs. I'm an instructional coach, former fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research and practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Welcome to episode 21 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. It is so great to have you here listening to this episode. I'm very excited for our guest. Her name is Dr. Pamela C. Snow, and she joins us to talk about a new framework she's developed that's called SOLAR, the Science of Language and Reading. There are many, many things I appreciate about the SOLAR framework, and I think it has important implications for the classroom. And we will get to all that, but first, just a few quick items of business. First, you may have noticed a slightly different show opener today. This year, I'm transitioning into a new role as an instructional coach for my school district. It's an exciting change for me. I'm very excited for the opportunity to devote my heart, mind, and soul to thinking about good instruction and helping support good instruction in the classroom. It's been, it's been hard leaving my classroom, I, I will admit that, but I think this will be a good change and help me see a broader view out there of good instruction. So on a related note, I am also entering the home stretch with my doctoral program at Utah State. All that's between me and a fancy piece of paper is my dissertation. I chugged at full steam with it over the summer, and I'm hoping to finish it up next spring. I'm really excited about my topic, and I hope the outcome will be valuable for literacy teachers. And once I have those outcomes, I'll be more than happy to share them with you. I only mention these two things because I need to talk just for a second about episode timing. Throughout the show for the last year, I've aimed to release two episodes a month, which has more or less been the case. But between settling into a new position and being a little bit more than knee-deep in a dissertation and with a worldwide pandemic going on, I'm going to ease up just a little bit on the schedule. Instead of twice a month, I'm planning on three episodes every two months. I'm certainly not abandoning the show. In fact, I'm, I'm actually more excited about what's going on with the show than ever, but I think my sanity calls for me to tap, tap the brakes here a little bit and um, make sure I get some important projects done. If I can produce more than that, I certainly will, and I, I may be able to crank out a few supplemental episodes that I'll just release solo with me, uh, but that is the plan until I have that fancy piece of paper in hand. So no more two episodes a month for a while. It will be three episodes every two months. So enough about me. Let's get to today's episode. You probably know that language development is critical for reading development, but you may have found yourself questioning the exact relationship between language and reading. My guest today is Dr. Pamela C. Snow, and she clarifies that important relationship between reading and language. Dr. Snow is a professor of cognitive psychology and head of the newly developed Science of Language and Reading Lab at Latrobe University in Melbourne, Australia. We discuss her new paper, Solar, the Science of Language and Reading, published in the Journal of Child Language Teaching and Therapy. We discuss the role of language in reading, the ground, foundation, walls, and roof on her language house framework, and how language can be supported in the classroom. I should also point out that her paper is open source, which means that you can view it for free. I highly recommend that you check the paper out. I will link to it in the show notes. 
it's very well written and one of the things i appreciate about the paper is that it's it's very accessible to a teacher audience as well as being accessible to other researchers so make sure to check out the paper you can see the picture of the of the language house and um it's it's a great read once the show's over make sure to stick around for my two cents on the conversation Dr. Pamela Snow, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you very much, Jake. It's lovely to be here with you. I'm really excited to talk with you today because uh, we're discussing a recent framework that you published called SOLAR, uh, Science of Language and Reading. And you've been researching oral language skills for nearly two decades now. When and why did you first become interested in how oral language influences uh, reading skills? Mm. I've actually been um, doing research in this area for more than two decades, just to date myself a little bit. Well, as a speech-language pathologist, um, I I guess I've always had a a deep abiding interest in language skills, but it was really the research that I commenced in 1999 on young people in the youth justice system that got me thinking about the role of language in educational attainment and uh, oral language and I guess if you sort of metaphorically peel the onion if you're going to talk about the role of language in educational attainment then you've got to talk about the role of language in the transition to literacy to reading writing and spelling and of course what I started finding um, when I was turning over the rocks in that space was highly problematic and um, a very contested space, as I'm sure you and your listeners are well aware. I really like that in this paper, in your, the, the framework that you're providing, you really try to outline very clearly the role of language in literacy development. And you note that the two are closely and interrelated development domains, but You also point out that the acquisition of each, the acquisition of language and the acquisition of reading proficiency, that they develop in different ways. So can you compare and contrast for us how these two can be so closely related, but how their development is different? That's an excellent question. I guess I would defer here to, amongst others, the work of David Geary, who has proposed what he calls an evolutionarily informed theory of child development where he makes a a distinction between developmental domains that he calls biologically primary and those that he calls biologically secondary. So oral language skills fall into the biologically primary category. So they are skills that, barring exceptional circumstances, children are going to develop. So clearly a child who is um, profoundly hearing impaired or who has um, severe autism or severe intellectual disabilities is going to be um, significant restrictions around that. But if we just deal with um, typically developing um, children for a moment, um, there's a biological evolutionary imperative around the acquisition of oral language. Reading, writing and spelling, on the other hand, are human contrivances that, um, you know, clever humans developed some, we think, 6,000 years ago because it was realised that there was a value in having a record that was longer lasting than the spoken word in order to be able to 
share information, to transact business and, and so forth. So the, the written word um, was developed. And, and that evolved out of the fact that we humans had already mastered the use of the, the spoken word. Um, so they are closely connected, but they're not one and the same. And unfortunately, the um, part of the thinking of um, whole language literacy education, literacy pedagogy in the 1970s and 80s and, and longer, but that's where those ideas really took hold, was that children don't receive specific instruction in order to learn how to talk and listen and understand. So therefore, we should treat reading in the same way and just immerse children in text and they will intuit the process of reading, writing and spelling. And, and that idea, unfortunately, was fundamentally theoretically flawed. So if I can maybe summarize, and at, at the risk of oversimplification, that oral language development is something that the brain does somewhat naturally, that if, if the brain's immersed in a rich oral language environment, the brain will develop that syntax and that capacity. The same cannot be said for reading, that it takes more than immersion right. in text in order to learn to read. Right. It's a secondary. And we wouldn't have so many illiterate or semi-literate people on this earth um, if that wasn't the case. You know, lots of semi-literate people have been exposed to text, but they haven't actually been taught how to crack the code and how speech and print map to each other. You already pointed this out, but that knowledge in and of itself has massive classroom implications that there is a code to reading and that code is supported by oral language and that those things need to be systematically taught is, is massive, massive for, for teaching of reading. It is massive and it's massive for children. You know, there's a paradox here in the fact that there are some children, and I don't think we know exactly what proportion it is, but there's definitely a proportion of children, and let's say for argument's sake it's 40 or 50%, who are going to get across the metaphorical bridge to literature literacy to reading, writing and spelling in the first three years of what we call primary school, what you call elementary school. They're going to do that almost irrespective of the pedagogical environment that they're in. But that's not enough for us to use as the design principles for an entire education system. We have to be bringing everybody along, and in particular the children who for a range of reasons are in the tail of the curve. I think that's uh, a wonderful way to help segue into this next part of, about the science of reading. Um, it, it's a term that's gotten very popular over the last few years, and in some instances it's been um, narrowly applied to, applied to being a, a phonics-only approach, but within mm. your paper you're framing the science of reading in, in a much wider lens. So can you talk about how, the, how we frame the science of reading matters and then how, how would you frame the science of reading? Well, I think it is important that we unashamedly talk about the fact that there is a science of reading. And I know in some education circles, that kind of language is not popular. It's not well received. I think, unfortunately, in some quarters, um, just the notion of talking the language of positivist science is unpopular and a little bit on the nose. But I think we need to hold very firm to the principle that there is a science of reading in the same way as I point out in the paper, 
that there's a science to the study of memory, of perception, of cognition, of learning. You know, we can't reject a science of reading without rejecting the science of all of those other things. And there have been massive scientific advances in our understanding of what the reading process is from a psycholinguistic perspective, from a cognitive perspective, from a neuropsychological perspective in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. But we haven't been good for a range of reasons at translating that knowledge into the hands of practitioners who need it the most, and that's early years teachers. So... Yes, there is a science of reading, but I think perhaps in our enthusiasm for promoting the importance of looking at this scientifically, we've perhaps overlooked the role of language in um, reading. And that's one of the purposes behind this paper, and that's why I've called it the science of language and reading, to literally and metaphorically, as I say in the paper, put language at the centre of the reading process. So then to move to the actual uh, framework that you that you talk about in the paper, you call it the language house and you're communicating how reading and language relate and you have a, the figure of the language house that includes a solid ground, a slab rock foundation, two walls, structure to support the roof, and then finally the roof. So let's discuss each one in turn. So before we get to the house, we'll talk about the solid ground. And I, I appreciate that you went even deeper than the foundation and went to the ground that the house is built on. Uh, what is the ground in the language house built on and why did you feel it was important to include the ground in your model? Um, I'm going to answer the first part of the second part of that question first and that's because a lot of my research over the last 20 years has been on very vulnerable young people. So um, young children who are the subject of child protection orders, adolescents in out-of-home care. I'm assuming that this language that I'm using translates yeah. um, for people in other countries. Young people in the youth justice system, um, which you would call the juvenile justice system. And, of course, there's a lot of crossover for those populations. So a lot of pe young people enter the youth justice system via the child protection system, for example. So a lot of my reading and thinking in the last 20 years has necessarily been about risk in early childhood and vulnerability and what it means for children to be exposed to various kinds of maltreatment in their early lives well before they get to school. In some cases, of course, that adversity occurs in utero when children, when infants are exposed to toxins, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is probably the most obvious example there, but other substances as well. Um, and, of course, we know that there are long-term adversities for infants of um, their, their mother just, you know, being highly stressed and experiencing poor nutrition during pregnancy. But if we just look at that period from birth to, say, the preschool years, that's incredibly important in terms of the, the uh, relational milieu that children find themselves in, that infants and, and toddlers find themselves in. So... In optimal circumstances, we want um, infants and young children to be cared for by adults who are highly responsive, highly attuned, who are able to relegate their own needs and anxieties to second place most of the time and be emotionally available 
to build what the attachment theorists refer to as internal working models of, of attachment and bonding and relationships to help the, the infant and the toddler to understand that the world is mainly made up of people who are reliable and responsive and trustworthy. And of course, within that, that, that the whole process is highly linguistically mediated. Uh, when we soothe an infant, we do so using words, songs sometimes, but there's a lot of words there. As, as children move into toddlerhood, we give them verbal labels for their affective states, their emotions. So we help them to organise and we give them the beginnings of emotional self-regulation by giving them verbal labels for emotional states, angry, upset, disappointed, frustrated. It's much easier to manage an emotion when it has a name and it can be talked about and discussed. So there's a lot that goes on and the developmental psychologists, of course, talk about the importance of that occurring in a serve and return kind of framework. And we know that that's very important for, not especially love this term, it's a shorthand term, but I'll use it, that the wiring of the infant brain. So what we're talking about there really is the creation of neural pathways that become more efficient because they're used more and more. When adults are responsive and when they're child-led, they're providing emotional warmth and attunement as well as lots of fabulous, rich language stimulation as well. I think this is a pattern that we'll also see when we talk about the, the strong foundations, but I think when folks think of language, they're just, they, they almost conflate it with vocabulary of, of just knowledge mm-hmm. of words. But you're arguing that language is at the center of how we develop secure relationships and how we right. are able to self-regulate. And it's, it's this huge framing for how we see the world. And that's obviously going to affect how not only our relationships develop, but also that reading development down the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just having the, the simple act of having a word to describe how you feel is very powerful. It's very powerful for us as adults. And I don't think I referred to this literature in this paper, but there is actually a literature on a construct called alexithymia, Uh, which is a lovely word for the word nerds out there. So the prefix A means lack of, lexi means word, and thymia means feeling. So alexithymia is the state of not having words for feelings. And we know that there are certain clinical populations in whom that is more prevalent. Um, And I've reported it in, in a youth justice sample as well. So... Yes, vocabulary is important uh, for all the reasons that we all know and agree, but uh, it also has a language, has a deep connection with feeling states and self-regulation. That is fascinating. That could be a whole podcast episode in and of of itself, uh, maybe for another day, but we'll move on to the, the strong foundations of the house. Again, when we think of early reading development, some folks might be thinking of, you know, learning letters in preschool or maybe being able to, uh, you know, correspond a letter with a sound. Um, But you go earlier than that. When does reading development actually start and what are the critical characteristics of that early reading development? Well, I think, I think this varies from family to family and probably community to community, and it depends a little bit on um, how elastic your definition of reading is. Ideally, I think what we want to see happening in the preschool years is a lot of pre-literacy development. So obviously um, building oral language vocabulary 
being able to use and understand increasingly long, syntactically complex, morphologically complex sentences. So by morphologically, I'm talking about the inflectional endings on words. So being able to add ing and ed and plural present progressive s's and and so forth to make make words more syntactically um, complete being able to engage with narrative discourse so being able to you know it's incredibly important socially and cognitively for children to be able to share their experiences by laying them out in some kind of temporal order for a naive listener to understand, to learn about what they did today when they weren't there. So that also articulates with the notion of theory of mind and knowing that other people know things that are different from what you know. Um, So a young child uh, who lacks a theory of mind won't be... um, uh, won't be taking account of the listener perspective, whereas a child who does have a theory of mind, sometimes between four and five, knows what information they've got to provide to the listener to help the story to become more complex. So all of those things, I think, are profoundly important as pre-literacy skills, as uh, skills such as knowing how to handle a book, knowing which way up the book goes, knowing that the the spaces between the black squiggles correspond to boundaries between words. The funny thing is, when you think about it, speech doesn't have, we we don't put boundaries between words. When we talk, we would sound very different from how we currently sound now if we did. But we have to represent the boundaries between words in print and we do that by putting spaces between the words. So all of those concepts are really important in the the pre-literacy space. Now, some children, of course, in the years before they go to school are already starting to recognise and name letters, attach sounds to letters, write their own name and write other words. But we can't assume that's occurring. We need to be making sure when children commence their formal, uh, you call it kindergarten in the States, I think. Um, We're very messy here. We've got basically a different name for it in every state, Um, the first year of school. But that's where the um, the serious instructional component needs to begin on that set of skills, which is not biologically natural. The language development there, you know, can be highly dependent on, uh, you know, home environment, obviously, that those preschool mm-hmm. years, because developing, you know, things like theory of mind and then having long syntactically complex sentences Uh, it takes a rich environment for that to happen. And so then when a a student goes into kindergarten and it's phonics right out the door, that might be appropriate for some students or, but there might be students that need some pretty meaty language support along either in conjunction with that or or alongside Mm -hmm. of that. Is is that sort of what you're arguing or what what your perspective is? Well, I would say that they need to be occurring simultaneously. That what I regard as good phonics instruction has rich language instruction wrapped around it. So I would never advocate um, teaching decoding skills in a way that's divorced from meaning. So when, when a teacher is working with novice five-year-olds teaching the process of 
um, you know, perhaps they might be um, putting some letters together. They, you know, they might be working with magnetic letters and rearranging them and making words, some of which we would call real words, some of them might not be. But, you know, let, let's say they um, arrange the letters um, S, A and T into the word SAT, um, then that's an immediate opportunity to say, oh, SAT, like I sat on a chair. So there's meaning being built in there. It's not just a mechanistic process of linking the sounds to the letters, the phonemes to the graphemes. Yes, that's important, but I think it should always have meaning wrapped around it as well. Thank you for pointing that out. That's something I've, I've noticed across multiple podcast episodes I've done is different researchers, and we've talked about different things, but it seems that's a pattern I've picked out is when concepts are isolated from other re- language and reading concepts that they, they lose a lot of their efficacy because reading is a very independent act. You can't, if you are a great decoder, that doesn't make you a great reader. That it, it's, it, it takes all of those things to make, a, to make an expert reader. Correct. And, and also to create the motivation in children to read, to see it as a worthwhile activity. So then moving on from our strong foundations, you have two walls that are coming up on either side of the house. And the one side is the home language environment and the other side is the instructional environment wall. Quite a bit of time talking about the home environment, but you state that language development continues through these serve and return exchanges. And we mentioned that earlier, but how does that continue to spur on language development through the early elementary years? We, we all recognise that the preschool years are a, a period of what's sometimes referred to as a language explosion. There's a massive amount of development of language. If you look at the whole lifespan as a continuum, there's a lot of language development happening in the first five years of life. But, of course, language continues to evolve. It's a lifespan issue, um, but it continues to evolve very significantly across the primary, elementary and secondary school years. It's still incredibly important that students, children are acquiring new vocabulary um, once they get to school. So the, the tier one, we often talk about vocabulary in terms of three tiers. Tier one being the, the sort of um, garden variety, everyday words that are very, very high frequency and make up the business of everyday conversation, um, particularly between adults and children. So they're the, the sort of operational vocabulary um, that gets the message across and, and does the job of transacting the business of life. Tier two um, words are uh, perhaps moving into more um, specialised language of instruction um, and tier three, uh, as I said, are the more sort of subject-specific words um, that uh, are associated with particular parts of the curriculum. One of the, not by no means the only, but one of the best ways for children to be acquiring vocabulary is for them to be hearing words and hearing words in context and having the concepts that those words refer to discussed and unpacked with adults. So they're not being given a list of words to go home and learn in a decontextualised way. They're experiencing and encountering words in a rich contextual fashion and then having conversations that bounce off from that 
point um, about what that word is and what it means. Um, uh, and also having opportunities to experience the polysemous nature of words, the fact that many words have quite different meanings, or for us on the surface in 2020, what look like quite different meanings. Historically, we can often trace back um, how those uh, apparently different meanings came into um, being. An example I often use when I give presentations about this is the word funny. Um, and uh, if, if you said to a five-year-old, oh, that's a bit funny, isn't it? Um, now, they, they may only have one understanding of funny, then that's the amusing, but, and, and they might not understand why you said that it's a bit funny if you mean that it's a bit odd or hard to explain, but that's an opportunity then if they say, well, you know, why do you think that's funny, to explain that this is a word that has another meaning. Um, so it's a word that pays the rent twice. Um, I mean, that's not an analogy I'd use with the child. But uh, I think it's important that we understand that vocabulary can be built not just by using words but talking about words. So the meta-language that goes with building children's vocabularies is very, very important and allowing those conversations to, to go into all kinds of interesting places and topics. That's really powerful. If I can share an experience, uh, last summer I was having a class, it was a language and literacy we use, uh, uh, class, and our professor was talking to us about distancing language to use where you, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. So I, I had a two-year-old uh, at the time and I would leave in the morning to go ride the bus to school. And, and at first, at the beginning of the semester, he would say, dad, go. And after mm-hmm. I learned about distancing language, or it first started out as go. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then I would go back and say, yes, dad, go. And then that was our routine every morning as he'd say that as we get, went. And by the end of that class, you know, we had it all the way up to dad is going to school on the city bus. And that was wow. just from every, every interaction. I just gave him one more word, one more right. word. And, over, and that was, you know, it was a six-week cl- class that yeah. we were able to Fantastic. sort of stretch. And this, the, I think of the syntax of going from a single yeah. word sentence all the way up to dad's going to school on the city bus is I was, I was just blown Impressive. away. <laughs> and that was a big aha moment for me that, yeah, language really is important. It's a big deal when we think about reading development. Absolutely. And we, um, unfortunately, we know that some children experience much um, richer, more intentional home um, language and literacy environments and there's not much schools can do about that but they have to be cognizant of it and recognize that they have to get those children moving faster the ones who don't come from the um, language rich home environments we can't just have them moving at the same speed as the ones who do because then the gap between the haves and the have-nots, well, it doesn't just remain, it gets bigger. Um, so we actually have to be teaching in such an intentional, explicit, time-efficient way that we're accelerating the progress of those children who are coming from behind. So there appears to be general consensus across the board from wh- whichever reading perspective you're taking that, yes, oral language matters, but there's less consensus on how to make a good talker into a good reader. 
And you argue that uh, Go and Turner's simple view of reading can provide that bridge from language to reading and understanding of it. So can you briefly just elaborate mm -hmm. on the simple view of reading for listeners that might not be familiar with it and then how it connects with, sure. with language? Sure. And, and I'll start with that premise that you mentioned too, that, you know, whilst um, people like me, um, who yeah, I'm a speech language pathologist, I'm a psychologist, I'm um, very uh, committed to the importance of early oral language skills and ongoing language development. But I think we have to be careful that we don't overburden language with the responsibility to turn children from talkers into readers because that's that's, that's not the evolutionary um, function of oral language it's, it can set children up for success in that transition but on its own um, I mean there are some children who who get there rather seamlessly as we've already said but um, that, that's not the evolutionary function of oral language to turn children magically into people who can read, write and spell. So I think the important point of agreement between um, all camps, if you like, is that the purpose of reading is to derive meaning. Um, an important point of diversion um, between the, the camps where, where we part ways is that the proponents of whole language balanced literacy approaches to early reading instruction say that we should be starting with meaning. If reading's about meaning, then we start with meaning. Proponents of the science of reading who um, support or are... Um, you know, endorse, if you like, um, the simple view of reading. And I should say that that term simple is a misnomer. I wish they'd call it, called it something like the elegant view of reading um, because sometimes it gets dissed because of that word simple and it's not simple at all, but I think it is elegant because it reminds us that in order for children to access the meaning of text, there are two processes that need to be at work. And, and, and we're particularly looking here at the novice, so at the process of learning how to read. The child needs to be able to decode the text. They need to be able to lift the words off the page and understand that there is a principle, albeit in English it's not 100% transparent, but when we're talking about five-year-olds, we're usually hopefully talking about a high level of transparency in, in how sounds and letters map to each other. So there's that decoding component, and this is really important, multiplied by their language comprehension skills. It's not an additive formula. Um, reading comprehension is the product not the sum of those two things and anything multiplied by zero is as you and your listeners will know zero so if you've got very weak skills on either side of that equation you are not going to be good at deriving meaning from text either because you've got weak decoding skills or you've got weak language comprehension skills you're not going to um, be achieving the purpose of reading. So the simple view of reading, I think, stands up extremely well, um, you know, more than 30 years later, um, as a model that informs how we go about thinking about initial instruction 
but also as a model that um, supports us to think about struggling learners um, and where their strengths and difficulties lie and how we can best support them to help them to catch up. The elegant view of reading. I'm going to, that's, that's going to be my big takeaway because indeed the, the simple view of reading, it's, I think it's accessible and that perhaps that's what's making it elegant is, is it's accessible to understand. But, um, you know, there's a lot of nuance there that, you know, perhaps the, the, the simple throws there is a bit of a misnomer. I agree. So if we talk about uh, the support beam that's holding the roof off, up, the, one of the strengths of this model, I think, is that it's um, somewhat developmental, that it's, it's framing things from infancy into adulthood. And so the language house has a structural support beam and a roof, and they represent the role of language and literacy to engage in, in mainstream society. So what role do you see literacy and language playing uh, for how we interact with society in the 21st century? Mm. Well, oral language is the medium by which we transact the business of everyday life. Um, you know, if, if you or your listeners want to discover how important oral language is, well, the simplest thing to do is try not talking for a day. Um, if you want to make it really hard and discover how important language is, don't engage with any text for a day. And that means no emails, no SMSs, um, no social media, um, you know, language is particularly oral language. A metaphor I sometimes use is that it's like the air around us. It's utterly pervasive, but we don't actually give it any conscious thought until something goes wrong with it. So I'm not sitting here in my home in central Victoria in Australia right now thinking about the air quality because I'm not smelling smoke, I'm not smelling gas, um, the oxygen levels are absolutely fine. So I'm not thinking about it. If something goes wrong, I will start thinking about it. And I think the same applies to oral language. It's there in the, it's the, um, it's kind of the wallpaper in, in a sense. It's the wallpaper and the furniture. It's, it's how we um, in, engage with the world around us so fundamentally that we don't notice it until something goes wrong, until there's some kind of a tear in the social fabric that somebody misconstrues something that we've said or mishears something that we've said or um, takes something literally that was meant sarcastically or doesn't understand an idiom that we've used. Um, and, you know, for, for that reason, we have to look at how language is used in a social and cultural sense and also consider factors that can impair a person's ability to really nuance language use um, in everyday life. And we know um, if we talk to employers, for example, and I briefly reference this in the, in the paper, yes, they want to employ people who have a high level of technical proficiency, but they also greatly value what they call soft skills. That's a term I really don't like because it makes uh, it's a bit like the simple view of reading. Soft skills makes them sound like they're squishy and not very important. If you think about any workplace that you've worked in and if your listeners think about this, the, the, um, the, the, difficult, uh, the difficulties in the day often relate to 
how we engage with other people, either face-to-face or via email typically in the workplace and feeling that other people don't get it or misunderstand something or misconstrue something or leave out an important information that's important from another person's perspective. So it's very hard to... We can't just assume that students achieving high levels of technical proficiency with language and literacy will be enough for them to be successful in the social and economic mainstream, bearing in mind that in our first world economies, jobs for unskilled workers are disappearing and disappearing really rapidly because they're being replaced by artificial intelligence. Um, So it's going to be harder for less linguistically and um, academically um, competent workers to find employment. Um, so having having good social cognition skills is going to be even more important. So frequently we refer to, you know, the end goal of reading is, is comprehension, but you might argue that the end goal of reading is comprehension for productive functioning in society or, or something similar to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, mu- it's much deeper, I think, yeah. So we've, we've built this house, we've gone all the way from ground to roof, and there might be a few teachers out there feeling overwhelmed with uh, being able to support the language and literacy needs of their students. So maybe mm-hmm. we can spend a few minutes bridging to practice. Uh, you argue that uh, speech and, and language therapists in the schools are uniquely positioned to help support early uh, lit reading and writing support. How, how can a teacher use the, the speech language pathologist at their school more effectively? Um, Look, that's a great question and the answer will vary, I suspect, from district to district and school to school. Um, But if we think about a response to intervention framework um, and, you know, I'm I'm making a pyramid with my hands here um, and I think most of your listeners would be familiar with the notion of RTI, response to intervention. So speech language pathologists, because their area of expertise is communication, not just spoken communication, certainly in Australia and I think in the US as well, are doing more and more work in that early literacy space and helping to support teachers and support struggling students. I think we do need to be careful. I I think in my ideal world, we would have a stronger tier one by virtue of what teachers know and do such that our specialist support staff, such as speech-language pathologists, could be a little bit reserved, if you like, for the Tier 2, Tier 3 students. Um, And and also that capitalises on their specialised knowledge of conditions like developmental language disorder. Um, If we've only got speech-language pathologists working at Tier 1, then I do worry about what's happening for the Tier 2 and Tier 3 children. But I see a lot of evidence here, and and I know it's occurring in the States as well, of very strong productive collaborations between classroom teachers and speech-language pathologists. And that's what some people might not realise, is how complementary the skill set of a of someone with a speech and language background can be to a, a classroom teacher that's that's trying to teach literacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. In this model, only one wall represents what we would typically think of as, as quote unquote literacy instruction. And I've often seen oral language is almost mentioned as an afterthought to literacy. Like here's how you get a kid to read an, an oh yeah 
language matters quite a bit. Uh, yeah. How do you feel an understanding of this model could influence classroom instruction? That's a good question. Um, I, I think I would like to see it um, driving an approach to classroom instruction that is not either or, that is really equipping teachers to be intentionally teaching um, oral language, teaching vocabulary, teaching um, children to master and control uh, more longer, more syntactically complex sentences and to understand those and to deal with different um, text genres. Um, having children reading aloud, you know, and hearing how words are pronounced and hearing where the emphasis is in words. Um, talking about etymology and word families and um, linking that to the study of history and how English came to be the amazing complex language that it is. So it's not an either or, but we do need a teaching workforce that is richly equipped in their pre-service education about language and linguistics. And I, I think, unfortunately, that's a body of knowledge that's been eroded in teacher pre-service education in recent decades. And I think I, I know many, many teachers in Australia who have gone on their own journeys, um, you know, towards the, the, the science of reading, and that has encompassed a deeper, richer understanding of language. That's fascinating. Are there a few uh, high leverage oral language uh, strategies that you can recommend for teachers? Do you know, this is maybe a long bow, but I think one of the one of the most valuable things that teachers can do as a gift to themselves and to their students is be big readers themselves. So to actually see reading as a valuable leisure time activity so that they are immersing themselves in the world of words and in the rich content and background knowledge that classroom teachers require. So we haven't talked a lot about content knowledge today, but being able to teach, um, you know, if you're in the social studies curriculum, teaching about something to do with history or geography, teachers themselves having a deep level of general knowledge is, I think, profoundly important for preparing children for the texts that they're going to read and being able to discuss those texts in a really well-rounded, informative way that piques the curiosity of children to want to know more, but also equips them with enough background knowledge themselves that they, they get something deeper out of the book when they read it. So, so teachers engaging richly with text and reading and background knowledge, I think, is profoundly important and, and being committed to being lifelong learners, which I think most teachers are. Having the confidence to explicitly front load some of that instructional content, I think, is incredibly important as well. And uh, engaging with the work of uh, writers such as Isabel Beck and her colleagues on vocabulary development. If, if teachers are going to buy one book 
on vocabulary development, make it fix, bringing words to life, I think it is. What teachers do to build their own knowledge and skills will be shared with the children that they teach. That's wonderful. And I would imagine that a teacher that has more, you know, knowledge about a specific thing that they can communicate those nuances in, in subtle and perhaps more syntactically complex ways, that, that, that would be a very subtle thing within a classroom that would be hard to measure, but would obviously, you know, potentially have a high high yield on the, uh, for the student, student learning of things. Well, Dr. Snow, it's been so great to talk to you. I appreciate you coming on the show and, and talking about the science of language and reading. Where can folks go to find out more about your work and your, your blog and other, other ways to, to find um, your work? Yes, so there's my blog, which is called The Snow Report. So if you do um, if you do the Google image search, if you just put Pamela Snow plus Snow Report, uh, you'll get it. Otherwise, you'll find out where it's snowing in your local region, which probably isn't what you want to know. Um, there's my La Trobe University um, homepage, um, and there's Twitter. And I do recommend that teachers who are not on Twitter engage with that platform because there's a tremendous amount of very generous sharing and informative discussion and debate that goes on on the Edu Twitter platform. It will challenge your thinking. Right? That's what Twitter's done yeah, for absolutely. me. <laughs> absolutely. So final question for you, Dr. Snow. What makes a good teacher? Mm, th- there's no... Obviously, there's no simple answer to that. Um, someone who uh, loves being with children and young people, obviously, that's uh, important. Um, someone who is uh, forever curious, I think, um, and a, a perpetual learner, I, I think, is incredibly important. Someone who is a critical thinker, and is willing to question their assumptions and cognitive biases because we all have them and to reflect on practice someone who is persistent and can stay the course in the in the face of you know i think enormous challenges i think it's an incredibly complex and sophisticated craft teaching it requires high content knowledge but it does require a particular disposition as well. And the content knowledge and critical and skills, technical skills we can teach, dispositions are harder to, to convey. And I guess that's part of the reason that some people go the distance and some people don't. Dr. Pamela Snow, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Jake. It's been an absolute pleasure. A big thank you for Dr. Pamela C. Snow for joining us on the show today. I just want to remind you that her paper is open source. I've linked to it in the show notes, so make sure to check it out. I have two quick thoughts that I want to share. My first thought is on the science of reading. The science of reading is a very popular term these days, and for frequent listeners of the podcast, you'll notice that I've rarely said it. In fact, I think the first time it came up was actually in the last episode uh, with Dr. Tim Rosinski. And it's not because I disagree with the notion of a science of reading. Indeed, I hope you notice that this entire podcast is devoted to communicating reading research from researchers straight to teachers. But I haven't used the term because there's a few mostly minor squabbles I have with how the term is being applied and used. So I've stayed aloof. 
One of those squabbles deals with the focus of the science of reading. Much of what I've seen from the proponents of the quote-unquote science of reading is they focus in on one narrow aspect of reading development, be it phonics or background knowledge, etc. What I very much appreciate about Dr. Snow's framework is its all-inclusive nature. Her framework covers language and reading development literally from in utero to to an individual becoming a productive member of society. So that framework is broad enough that all aspects of the science of reading and language can find their place in there. And I think this framework will help us as practitioners connect the dots between different aspects of literacy development and be able to see the relationship. From there, we can find our role in helping someone go from child to productive member of society through literacy. So a great big thank you for Dr. Snow uh, for building such a thoughtful framework. And I I know that this is how I'm going to be thinking of the science of reading. This is how I'm going to start framing it is within this language house. My second thought has to deal with the nature of language development. I mentioned this toward the end of the show, but in the past, I've basically heard the importance of language in reading development, almost as an afterthought. I mentioned as a show that, you know, to become a good reader, you need this, 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 and this, and oh, by the way, language is really important. I never really received training in why and how language influences reading. In fact, it was my second year in my doctoral program that I got really deep into that, and uh, my mind was was blown away. And uh, I think my earlier instruction, my, my, my earlier years of teaching could have been a lot better with some more efficient language practices. But clearly with Dr. Snow's conversation, it's, it's very clear that language provides the framework within which reading proficiency develops. And I appreciate how she mentioned that good instruction includes language and reading instruction in tandem. So we shouldn't be divorcing phonics or divorcing reading comprehension or any other aspect of reading from language, that those two should be in tandem developed within the student. And so I hope it's, it's clear from the conversation that if we want to have a classroom with a rich literacy environment, by necessity, that means that our classroom has to have rich language development as well. If we can support both language development and literacy development within our classroom, I think we're doing our students a major service and using Dr. Snow's framework that we're helping them achieve the end goal of becoming a productive member of society. That is all for today's episode. If you're listening to this episode as it's released, you are likely going back to school in the midst of the ongoing pandemic. If that includes you in any form, I wish you effective instruction and good luck. If you appreciate what you've heard on this or any other episode, please share the show with a colleague. The show is growing leaps and bounds, and it's because of folks like yourself who care about students learning to read and care about what research Uh, shows is effective. So thank you for listening to the show. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.